Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Newsroom Robots, the podcast where we explore the intersection of artificial intelligence and the news industry. I'm Nikita Roy, data scientist, media entrepreneur, and one of the many founders currently building their ventures at the Harvard Innovation Labs. On the Newsroom Robots, I'm excited to bring you insightful conversations with industry experts about how AI is impacting the way we do journalism. Today's episode focuses on the challenges and opportunities of ChatGPT and how local newsrooms can harness this technology to serve their communities better. Joining me is Joe Mditis, Assistant Director of Products and Events at the Center for Cooperative Media and an adjunct professor at the School of Communication and Media at Montclair State University. Joe has coordinated several collaborative reporting projects, notably Democracy Day, which brought together over 300 newsrooms across the United States. He recently released the beginner's prompt handbook, ChatGPT for Local News Publishers. He's also a veteran of the New Jersey Army National Guard. Joe, welcome to the Newsroom Robots podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. We're excited to have you here. You've been quite busy at the Center for Cooperative Media hosting workshops all about ChatGPT for local newsrooms. So I'm really excited to have you on the show today and really delve into this topic of ChatGPT and what it means for the future of journalism. So just to kick things off, I'd like to take a step back and lay the foundation for our listeners and in layman's terms, get an understanding of what generative AI is. And so could you give us a brief overview of how it works and what its relation is to ChatGPT? Yeah, so most of your listeners are probably familiar with some form of generative AI or even the early attempts at it. If you remember Smarter Child, I mean, all going all the way back to like AIM and AOL and Messenger, they've been trying to do chatbots. And really, it sort of came from this desire to push the limits of what is possible with computing and create sort of like, you know, human like experiences and 
engagement and stuff. And so what it really is, what generative AI essentially is, at least in the term, if we're talking about like text-based generative AI, which is the, the most popular one everybody's talking about now, we won't get into like mid-journey and stable diffusion and stuff, but it's just a computer with a very fast and uh, smart computer that is able to look at a massive data set of text and Reddit posts and internet articles and news articles and everything from this big data set that it has. And based on all that information, it is able to pretty accurately being the operable word there in, in certain contexts, predict what is the most likely next word. So based on everything that's come before it and based on what you've said to it, it is able to very effectively and efficiently predict or guess what the next word is. And I say guess because, uh, and I and I alluded earlier to the whole accuracy aspect, is the big concern or the big scary part, I think, for, for part of it at least, is that sometimes it just makes stuff up whole cloth. It'll just, it'll make up academic sources and references. It'll make up stuff. One of the first things most people do with this thing is to see if, if you're in, your, in its data set. So it'll ask you, you can ask it who you are or Maybe if you work at an organization or a company, who, you know, tell me about the Center for Cooperative Media. And it, the majority of the information that it has it mostly is correct. But if you know a subject intimately well, it's easier for you to spot where it's just what it's called hallucinating, where it's just using that predictive aspect of its behavior to try to fill in the gaps. And, and oftentimes the danger with that is that it sounds so convincing that if you don't know, have intimate knowledge or familiarity with a topic, then it's very easy for you to get fooled. Frank, sorry, I can't remember his name. Uh, there's a great book called On Bullshit, which talks about the difference between lying and bullshitting. And I would argue that this this type of technology is just the best and most brilliant bullshit artist out there. But that being said, some things are, and what I focus on a lot in the ebook and in the trainings and workshops I've done is we actually have a lot of bullshit in our daily lives. A lot of our jobs are filled with bullshit, at least bullshit paperwork. And that's where I think AI can come in, a generative AI like ChatGPT can come in really handy because the amount of form emails, outreach, cold outreach copy, and all this stuff that is essentially the same bullshit over and over again with minor tweaks based on the situation or context in which it's in, that can save you a lot of time up front. And that time that you save those little bits over time can multiply and actually be a big help to especially publishers and organizations with you know less than five full-time staff. Yeah, and you've been delving into generative AI and before even the launch of ChatGPT, you said in one of your workshops. And so I'm kind of kind of curious to hear more about your personal experience once ChatGPT came out. What's been one of the key insights you've got from that journey? Any standout moments or challenges you faced while working with it? Well, I found out about it from TikTok at like maybe 1.30 in the morning one night when I should have been sleeping and I was scrolling in my bed and I saw somebody say, oh, you know, this new thing came out and it's crazy. And I immediately, you know, I switched over. I knew I recognized OpenAI because I had already been playing around with their GPT-3, their playground and everything. And I have no formal training background or experience in any of the computer science stuff that underlies all this technology. So please take everything I say today with a grain of inexperience and salt. But I'm coming at it from somebody who is an enthusiast, who is curious, who likes to play with these kinds of tools instead of doing the actual work that I'm supposed to be doing at the office. And sometimes like this, it just ends up, you know, working out nicely. And it turns out that that was something that was useful. But I mean, I stayed up for two and a half hours after that on my phone, just asking this, this thing questions. And again, this was like literally hours after it had originally been released in research preview. And I had just finished reading a book by Brandon Sanderson called The Lost Metal, which came out maybe a couple days beforehand. And it was like answering questions about the book. So, so it was very, it was very 
wild to me. And I didn't even realize at the time that it, it only was supposed to have data up until 2021. And so as they put increasing you know, limits and restrictions and people did increasingly nefarious things with it and tried to get it to trip up and tell it you, know, you had to make a bomb and stuff like that, it became more and more restricted. But in those, the early days, it was wild. It was the first couple of days. It was just anything you wanted back and forth. And I was having like, I mean, I've used it to play D&D with myself and create entire character sheets and scenarios and walk me through encounters and stuff. I've used it to, to generate tables, to, you know, have it come up with SEO keywords versus certain subjects. But one of the things that really strikes me about it and the capabilities of it, and I'm still working on figuring out how to do this myself, is to be able to feed it the data from my own organization. So all of our annual reports, our partner interactions, cleaned and, and, and you know, anonymized, obviously, or at least you know, made so that's just not sensitive. I don't want to put sensitive data into it. There's a whole reasons why, and I'm not fully comfortable with doing that yet. But to be able to use it as a sort of living institutional memory with perfect recall and the ability to make narrative connections and identify themes and shortcomings and everything, once you have it built on a large enough data set, a, a custom set of information and data, like I said, like our documentation and, and production, and publications over the last decade, the possibilities are endless. And, and it becomes a sort of imagine if you could hyper Google everything you've ever done at your organization. And not only that, you could ask it to identify patterns, themes and narratives that have emerged in your work that you may not even have realized or known existed. And then once you get deeper and deeper into this and you start realizing that the real power just like any tool, it's not the tool itself, but it's the people who are using it. And you start to understand that the questions that you ask this thing matter so much more even than its ability to, to spit out text. That's when the real fun starts. And with the latest release of GPT-4, which is you know light years better in terms of logical reasoning and process and being able to really produce, I mean, I'm using it now to, to write my own front-end interface for GPT-4 and a little chat bot with no coding experience. I mean, my dad's a software engineer, so I know how to talk to those kind of people, kind of. My dad would probably argue with that. But I don't know JavaScript. I don't know Python. I don't know how to do this. I've tried a million times to teach myself that. And I was able to stand up a front-end interface connecting to the API at OpenAI in you know a matter of hours with the GPT-4 update. And the code works. And it can diagnose your code. And it can comment out all of your code. So not only are you able to build things and have it build with you as a sort of co-pilot, as it's called, but it can help you lay the breadcrumbs for others to you know, follow up and make your work repeatable as well. So I mean, I could go on for hours about it. But th there are so many capabilities that it would be silly for me to try to list them all in the course of one podcast. Let's just suffice it to say that much. Yeah. And so let's shift our focus and focus directly on local newsrooms and the power that ChatGPT has and how they can harness it. And how do you see ChatGPT being an integral tool that they could use to for their operations and reporting processes? I've worked with local news organizations, local publishers, local journalists, entrepreneurial journalists for the last decade. And I used to be one myself, and most, if not all, of these folks are working on a shoestring budget with a very small team. Most of them are wearing, as the common you know saying goes, like a million different hats. A lot of them, especially in like the 2012 to 2015, 16 timeframe, were journalists that were either laid off or let go by ma major newsroom or chain newsrooms, and went from reporting or editing or designing their entire life to 
thinking, you know, I'm going to start something of my own. I'm going to do the news the way I think it should be done. I have all this experience and I'd like to bring that to my community, whether it's a local community or an identity based community or a cultural community. And I'm going to do that. And then they quickly realize that their journalism experience, per se, their writing and editing and all that kind of stuff is is useful, but it is nowhere near close to the whole picture. And the often the only avenue of redress or approach for them is to hire and or listen to a bunch of consultants, hopefully rely on organizations if they exist in their area, like the Center for Cooperative Media, which is grant funded and set up specifically to serve and support the needs of those exact kind of needs of small publishers. But Ultimately, it's just to have to schedule a meeting or go to an event or a workshop every time you want to learn about something new or spend hours trying to figure out what to even Google to know what you need to know that you don't already know about a particular topic is tough. And with something like GPT and the other, you know, all the other GPT based apps and and services that are out there, you can start further back and, and it takes, I'm hoping, and this is sort of the way I would approach it if I were somebody in their position, that you would never have to worry about hiring a consultant ever again, except, you know, if you were lonely and you wanted to talk to somebody, because all of a lot of the, at least the upfront work, the structural work, the understanding, even understanding the terminology and knowing what to ask for. I mean, how many people who didn't go to business school or some kind of, you know, higher education know what a SWOT analysis is, for instance, right? I didn't even know about it until a couple of years ago because I did political science as my major. I did not do business. When you learn a new word when some, with a tool like this, that word now becomes fully accessible to you and you can implement those and you can have it generate examples of those kind of stuff. But at a smaller, more granular, granular level and going back to the mountain of bullshit that you have to do on a daily basis when you run a business or when you work in one, having that be right at your fingertips and even being able to ask a question and have it generate documents for you while you're working on other things, then you come back to it and you check. It's just the time saving and the knowledge acquisition and accumulation components of it alone are worth it. In my opinion, I mean, the thing's free, first of all, but if we're talking about like paying, you know, a couple, maybe 10 or $20 a month, incredibly worth it. But then when you get into the, you know, the weeds of this and you start to build a sort of process for how to integrate this into your workflow, you combine it with things like Zapier, which is an easy no code automation tool where you can based on triggers and responses, you can generate social media copy, additional, you know, alternate headlines, have it help you clean up transcripts and maybe even extract relevant or useful quotes. I mean, formatting text alone. I mean, the amount of terribly formatted, abysmally formatted emails and communications that I see on a daily basis is enough to make this thing worth it because it can create bolded lists. It can create tables. It can print things in different formats. It's pretty damn good at language translation in in, in a lot of cases. Not perfect, but you can tell it to specialize or customize the translation for particular colloquial dialects. I mean, you can translate something in general Latin American Spanish, or you can have it translate in Cuban Spanish or Puerto Rican Spanish. And so far, the testing that I've done and worked with our live translators, you know, our human translators, it's not unreadable and it's better than Google Translate. But of course, I mean, there's there's specialized tools like DeepL that are out there for that kind of task. But just this like leap in the ability and the accessibility of this technology is where the biggest value bump is going to be. It is now at max, in most cases, like $20 a month to get the GPT Pro account. And I would argue you don't even really need that. So the ability to just access this and play around with it and understand how you can incorporate it based on your needs and your organization's needs is, has never been lower. The barrier to entry has never been lower. And it really just comes down to, do you have the imagination and creativity to figure out ways to implement this? And if you don't, come talk to me. I'll, I'll shoot 
you know, back and forth with you and we'll figure out how you might be able to use it. Yeah. And it's really exciting to see the use cases of Chad GPT, but now we have also reached a point where we need to know how to write for the robots yeah. so that they give us the output that we want, which basically is AI prompt engineering. And Joe, you're just the person to talk to. You've put together a whole handbook about Bigner's prompt engineering for Chad GPT and how local newsrooms can use it. So what guidelines should we be keeping in mind for writing for Chad GPT? Yeah. So thank you. First of all, thank you. It was very kind. I don't think prompt engineering is going to be around as like a, a thing for too much longer. I think the most relevant example I can give is, I don't know if you remember when Google first be, was becoming popular and search engine and Boolean search came out. And I would argue it's, a lot of people still don't know how to Google things. I reminded of that almost every day. But essentially, you know, people had to learn how to talk to Google and how to ask for things in the right way in order to get the right results, which then eventually bled into how do you publish things so that Google's scrapers will see it. And that's where SEO came from, this idea of search engine optimization. And, and it comes from both ends. So on the one end, the users have to get a grasp on how to how to search for things. And even beyond that, the number of searches will, you know, grows exponentially as the network effect takes, you know, goes into effect and more and more people use it. And so you used to have to, you used to have to show people, you can't just Google, how do I do this? I'm trying to do this because you need to use keywords. You need to say legal template, MOU, local news, New Jersey laws, like, you know, and you had to use all these specific phraseology and terms that you use. Whereas now it's sort of flipped again. And now they do want you to ask to, to ask in full sentences, because it's based on natural language processing, which is just a fancy way of saying it speaks like a human being does, and it can understand those things. And it's still a black box at some level in terms of what you would have to write in order to get certain responses. And part of the one of the, the sort of like warnings or downsides of this is that we don't really know, or at least I don't even think the open AI folks fully know why it kicks back certain responses based on certain prompts. But it's safe to say that there are certain patterns and certain tricks and tips that you can use. And I talk about them in the ebook. The most popular one that everybody knows at this point, or at least everybody who is paying attention to this knows the sort of act as prompt where you you tell the bot to pretend that it's a marketing professional. And from what I understand, really all this is doing is it's just giving a general area of the large database of information that is in that bot. It's giving you a general area of where it should be focusing on for its responses. So when you say, make me this, right, it'll make it'll do its best. And it's it really doesn't have any starting point. But if you say act as a marketing professional or as a nonprofit management expert, all of a sudden now, Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. 
that it weights or preferences information related to nonprofit management or for marketing upfront. It sort of front loads that type of information and it uses that context to give you the responses that are more targeted and more tailored for that particular situation. And so it's it's sort of like a dance. You're going back and forth. And again, this thing has been out for less than like three months or something. It was like November 30th is when the big GPT-3 uh, chatbot was unveiled. So this is going to change. And it's already changing, even with four just coming out. It's going to change. But for now, everybody's still trying to sort of figure out the best way to go back and forth with these things. And really, the best way is to just play around. It's, you know, if you have the free account, you just have unlimited prompts. It's not like... There's a limit on this, not charging you or costing you money. I would just mess around and see what it's good at, see what it's not good at. See if you can trick it. And honestly, that's where I've learned the most is I've tried to see if I can trip it up, see if I can confuse it, and try to understand how it responds to increasingly confusing or convoluted requests. And then through that sort of emergent picture, you start to get an idea of what it's best at and what it's sort of like shaky at. Joe, can we just like mess around with it a bit and see how you would write prompts for ChatGPT? Sure. Let's mess around a little bit. So if I were a local newsroom and I wanted to, you know, I want to make stuff where where I have a a client, let's say I have a client that is an advertising client. I've wanted them to pay me. We ran their ads. I wanted to pay them and they haven't paid me. And I don't want to hire a lawyer yet, but I want to let them know that I'm serious and I want to use language that sounds really scary, legal language that will, you know, convince them that I'm serious, but I don't even know where to start and I don't have the money for a consult. So I say, I just speak to it like a normal person. I have an advertising client for my local news publication, The Willow, and they haven't paid me for the ads we ran for them for four months between January 2022 and April 2022. Please write a scary, legal-sounding email to the CEO of the shitty ads, Incorporated, letting them know that if we don't receive payment in full within the next two weeks, we will be forced to escalate the issue. Okay, so I've given it context here. I tell it what I want. This is what I want it to do. This is some additional context about who it's going to. This is what the newsletter should have. This is the type of tone, the scary sounding, scary legal sounding email, right? And I'm just going to hit it. Let's see what it does. This is, again, this is the 3.5 model. Dear CEO of Shitty Ads Incorporated. Yeah, this sounds pretty convincing. It says, I'm writing to you today regarding your outstanding debt of payments for advertisements that were run in the Willow between January 2022 and April 2022. Despite numerous attempts to contact your company and resolve this matter, we have yet to receive payment for the services rendered. And it sounds pretty scary as well, saying, as you're undoubtedly aware, failure to pay for services rendered is a serious matter, can result in legal consequences. And we're therefore demanding that payment be made in full within the next two weeks. And if payment is not received within this time frame, we'll have no choice but to escalate the matter. This could result in legal proceedings and additional fees and expenses incurred by a company. And it's like a whole four paragraphs here. This sounds legit. And this sounds like it was written by an attorney. And it's giving me all the information I need. So I'm going to read this very carefully before I send anything like this. I'm going to make sure that at all times and at every level, I have robust and careful human oversight. But let's just say, let's say we want to want to make this a little scarier. Now, the thing that makes these things so powerful is its ability to remember 
up to a certain point, the context of the conversation. So a lot of chatbots in the past, what would, would happen is you send a message, it sends you a response. And then your next message is as if it was coming from a brand new person. It has no memory of the conversation. And what the fact that this does have that to a certain extent means you can do things like add a paragraph uh, that's, that states that we've reached out to them several times over the course over the last three weeks and have not received an adequate response. So I'm not giving it any information that I want it to continue to refer to our original conversation, but it knows that. So when I click this, it's going to rewrite, it's going to add the, it's going to give me the paragraph here. And then I can say like combine them into, let's just say combine them. So now it's combining this paragraph and it's inserting it in here where it makes sense. Boom. Over the past three weeks, all of this. So right away, this is like this is super useful because it is it's giving me the language and the tone and the type of writing that I wouldn't even I wouldn't even know where to begin on something like this. And then I can even say create a list of ten possible avenues of redress that we could pursue if they don't respond. And let's see what it does. So now it's just giving me advice on what I can do if they don't respond. And, and you just go, you can go further and further and deeper and deeper with this. And you can even go back up and edit your previous responses, which starts a sort of new sub-thread or a new branch of the conversation tree that'll allow you to, let's say they haven't paid, it's not sh CEO of Shitty Ads, it's the CEO of Ads Unlimited, right? And now when I hit submit, it starts over, but it saves that conversation. And you can make infinite adjustments and tweaks like this allowing you to quickly generate very similar but customized emails for different clients or different people who are ripping you off. And then as you can see, our original conversation history is still there. So I'll stop there so that we're not just looking at my screen this entire time. But um, that's basically where we're at in terms of the quickness and the usefulness of something like this. And you can see and you can hopefully you can imagine a myriad other uses and possibilities for something like this. We didn't even get into it, its ability to help you code or to create spreadsheets and analyze data. It's just 3.5 kind of sucks at math. That's the only thing. In true journalist fashion, it sucks at math. So you're you feel right at home there, most of my most of the journalist listeners. <laughs> And I think using it for the journalism world, we have a standard of ethics and practices that we need to absolutely adhere to. And so it's important for us to, to touch upon the challenges and opportunities that come with ChatGPT. And from an ethical standpoint, what considerations should local newsrooms be aware of when employing ChatGPT for their operations and using it in scenarios like this? Well, number one, you should just assume that everything it gives you is bullshit. Everything that it, it, it sends back to you is either wrong or mis or incorrect or just slightly off. And if you go to, if you approach it with that mindset, because reality is most of it is fine. But if you approach it with that mindset from the beginning, you won't let your guard down. You'll stay vigilant and you won't get caught with your pants down when you publish something that is blatantly false or embarrassingly incorrect or just betrays like a deep ignorance of a subject that is very common, right? And this happens, this is the same thing when you get content or, you know, stories and journalism submitted from freelancers or from somebody who you don't sit behind at work, you always want to edit because anything you put out into the world that has your name or your company name on it, you're going to want to have to stand by, you're going to want to be able to stand by it. So the rules haven't really changed too much there. The thing where we start to get murky is attribution and disclosure, which is where I think Already, journalists do a terrible job, or you know, capital J journalism does a terrible job of letting 
the community into the process and not just letting them watch, but letting them participate. Uh, and that's a whole nother conversation we can have. But the same basic principles apply. Let people in, have them, give them a window at the very least into how this works, show them and tell them and make it clear to them that you, you know, what kind of tools or assistive technologies or generative technologies went into the production of your journalism and of your work. Um, and again, just reiterating, this goes for all aspects of journalism, not just the stuff you do with AI, but particularly because of the the sort of public moral panic around this kind of stuff at the moment. Like with anything, transparency, trust, honesty, disclosure are your are your friends. The London School of Economics is doing a lot of really interesting work when it comes to the use of of AI in their newsroom. They're, I think they're even doing a community journalism, journalism AI community workshop coming up soon. And I just got off the phone with one of the folks from that organization today. They have all kinds of resources that they're building out in terms of, you know, an ethical approach to using this type of technology. How do you do disclosures? Trusting News is another organization that's really focusing on this and doing some great work. And they always have around tr- transparency and authenticity and honesty and openness in journalism. And even folks like Wired Magazine have a very clear disclosure policy on their website and uh, in their articles where they say not only how they used AI tools and generative AI in their production, but they say what they're willing to use AI tools for and what they're not willing to use them for, and then what they're still considering and on the fence about. So for instance, they will not be using any AI-generated images for their articles, but they might be, they are open to using AI to help generate social copy and, and suggest alternate headlines for articles. So it really varies based on the relationship that you have with your audience and the relationship that you have to your own journalism and how comfortable you feel opening up the doors and letting people see that process. And I would argue that in most cases, it's going to be a benefit because you build trust by letting people know what you're doing and B, like they might have better ideas on how to use it than you do. So why not let them in and become part of the process and then you can build together. And that way, the question of is this going to build trust or not is out the window because of course it will, because they were part of it along the way. This is quite an exciting discussion, and I want to wrap things up with understanding how you see sort of like the future of the local newsrooms evolving, especially with the rise of generative AI and the power that ChatGPT holds. What thoughts do you have in terms of like how this is going to evolve and the implications it might have for newsrooms? We're going to see a lot more nonsense. (laughs) You know, three years of a pandemic and the majority of people I talk to still don't know how to share their screen on Zoom. So I think we're a long way off from mass adoption. What we are going to see is a lot of people who were previously unable to access these kinds of tools and maybe would have thrived in using them and excelled, now they're going to be able to do that. So your grifters, your scam artists, I mean, you combine ChatGPT with Eleven Labs voice cloning and the amount of grandmas and grandpas who are going to get their credit cards stolen in Google gift cards or Amazon gift cards is going to skyrocket. They just, I'm sorry, just people are dumb and they're very easily tricked and a few, you know, relatively, you know, clever folks with sinister motives, it's going to do some damage. I mean, the same thing today. I've seen at least six hilarious, but very real looking photos of Donald Trump getting arrested. That didn't happen, or at least not yet, or not at all. I know that that didn't happen because I follow the news and I know I would see more about this, but they've got the hands right and everything. These images are very convincing. They're hilarious, 
But I know for a fact, I'm just waiting to get that text message from my cousin who doesn't pay a lot of attention to news and may see these floating around. And it's just, can you believe? And then I, you know, it's going to be, it's going to be a lot more of a headache for your fact checkers, for your debunkers and everything. And God bless them. I do not envy them for what they're going to have to deal with in terms of the onslaught of fake and misleading and generated content. But it's also this type of hand wringing also happened when the printing press came out. Oh, anybody can write anything now. What are, what are we just going to let anybody publish anything? And yeah, we are. And guess what? It's going to be chaos. We haven't even really exited or left the, you know, introductory bubble of the Internet, if we're being honest. I mean, the it's been what, maybe 20 years since ubiquity of the Internet, I would say, maybe around the early 2000s. And like I said, as before... Zoom's been around for three years. We still haven't really figured out how to do that kind of stuff yet. So there's going to be a, lo- a big learning curve for some people. There's going to be a bigger learning curve for those for on the interpretation and the di- and the consumption end. But we're also going to see the proliferation of a lot of empowered individuals and low resource organizations able to generate output and work with things and build things at a scale and at a level and with a, a sophistication and complexity that they were previously unable to do so without lopping a major budget off for, you know, tech and, and digital and development and stuff. So you're it, like any new technology, you can't uninvent it. It's here now. You can either figure out how it works and understand how it operates, or you can, you know, whine about it and wait until it takes over. So I choose to be on the, on the tinkering side. I'd like to know how it works. I don't ever, I don't want this to become like my thing, you know, because I get a lot of crypto vibes from the conversation around AI and the hype bubble that sort of is exploding there. And Lord knows the grifters and the hustle culture people have already uh, globbed onto it and have already started. I already got fooled by a, a $2 prompt book. And that's actually why I wrote the prompt book that I wrote, because I paid $2. I was like, yeah, I'll pay $2 for this. And in two seconds, I was like, AI wrote this. Like the chat bot wrote this thing. I was like, damn it. So I was like, well, actually, you know what? What if I wrote a good one and then asked, you know, if people would throw a few bucks? And it turns out they would. And so again, when bullshit is so easy to make, the value is in authenticity and reality and human input and creativity. So it will simultaneously make it harder to tell the difference and also easier to distinguish yourself and rise above if you just put a little bit of elbow grease into something instead of just having the bot do it. I will say, though, I cannot wait for the day to end when every single person I talk to asks the same question anytime I write an email or submit some text which is just, did the bot write that for you? Or did you write, like, I'm waiting to the point where it gets that, that question becomes similar to asking, well, did you, did you know that? Or did you Google it? So that's, that's what I see as the future. And, um, you know, I'm excited. It's, it's exciting. It's scary. Either way, it's going to be funny, which I tend to appreciate whether or not that's going to be good for humanity and society overall. I can't tell you, but I'm here for the ride. So Yeah. And just to wrap up, for newsrooms who want to be at the forefront of adopting this technology, and what's the biggest piece of advice you would give them right now? It's free. It's unlimited knowledge. Play around with it. Like, we have to come up with a new, like, let me Google that for you thing, because there's no reason you shouldn't at least just make a free account, make a burner email, mess around with it, see what it's capable of. If you dig it, you dig it. If you don't, you can bail. But there's no cost to learning this thing, and it accelerates your ability to learn. So if you don't find that interesting or intriguing, I don't know what to tell you. You know, have fun. (laughs) 
Yeah. Well, it's been an absolutely fascinating conversation to have with you, Joe, today. And I can't thank you enough for taking the time to be on the AI and Journalism podcast and sharing all of your insights and experiences with ChatGPT so far. Before we wrap up, I'd love to let our listeners know how they can stay connected with you and learn more about the resources and projects that you're working on. Sure. Yeah, you could just go to centerforcooperativemedia.org. That's our organization's website. We're also on Medium and on Twitter at Center Co-op Media. Yeah, that's it. Centerforcooperativemedia.org. Fantastic. Once again, thank you for joining us today. And it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. That was Joe Mditis, Assistant Director of Products and Events at the Center for Cooperative Media and author of the Bigness Prompt Handbook, ChatGPT for Local News Publishers. You can look at our show notes for resources related to today's podcast. Subscribe to Newsroom Robots wherever you get your podcasts and send us any questions you have at newsroomrobots.com. This podcast was made possible thanks to the Harvard Innovation Lab's Spark Grant. I'm Nikita Roy and thank you for listening to Newsroom Robots. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.